Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? So great to see everyone today. We want to welcome our Lexington and Shelby campuses. And those of you online, can we give them a hand? We love you over Lexington and Shelby. And uh, what I call Crossroads Nation. Around, around the country, even those of you joining online, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, we know some of you are not ready to be back yet, but we're glad that you can join us online. And uh, we're encouraged that the fact that we can still stay connected through technology. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 979. Ephesians chapter 6, page 979. As always, if you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church to you. Uh, We're going to look right through a text together. It's not going to be just man's idea. We're going to get God's idea in his word together today. At every campus, by the way, if you're online, you can go right to our app and you can follow along, electronic device or any uh, computer you have, you can read right along with us. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, before we dive in, uh, a couple big things. This afternoon, 5 p.m., a great time here at our Park Avenue campus. We have people from every campus that is going to be baptized They are going to be making a public declaration of their inward faith. They're going to be declaring the work of Christ in their life. And so we want to invite you to come out and join us as we celebrate with uh, over 40 people uh, that are going to make that step of obedience to publicly declare their faith. By the way, if you have not taken that step of obedience, it is a step of obedience. Baptism does not save us, but it does declare that we're willing to follow the Lord. By the way, the reason why God chose baptism is because if we're not willing to at least get wet, are we going to be willing to endure when things get difficult? Probably not. And so the picture of baptism is a a public declaration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and a declaration to all that we're willing to follow him. And so if you've not followed uh, the Lord in baptism, you can stop by any place next steps at every campus or online just right now. You can say, hey, I need to be baptized. Join us at 5 p.m. and uh, we'll get you all lined up. We have a great time plan, a time of worship, a time of celebration. And uh, just a little additive, we do have some ice cream. We'll have some food and ice cream and just celebrate with those who are publicly declaring, celebrating their step of obedience to say they want us to know that they know Christ. And so we hope you'll join us. Uh, We're going to observe all the social distancing ideas out in the parking lot. We have it all planned. It's going to be great. It's going to be a fun time together as a family. Also, I want to mention just kind of some some news that uh, just keep you up to date. This time I get to come to you before it ever gets to the newspapers. Um, but I want to give you an update. A few weeks ago, I mentioned here Park Avenue about the uh, OC Hill building uh, in the north end of our town, that we were looking at that and just kind of doing due diligence. And our plan was never to even mention that. We just wanted to know whether uh, that was a building we should consider being a part of and helping re- rejuvenate and help reach that community, help to build up that community. As many of you know, we have a city center in downtown Mansfield doing phenomenal things, overflowing with ministry. Could we multiply that ministry at a different location? So we have done our due diligence on the OC Hill building. It's over 100 years old. Uh, We walked through tons of inspections. We have every type of inspection you could imagine. We interviewed multiple people in our church that worked there, and they had some inside scoop into how that building functions. And we as a team of elders decided that we did not believe that that would be a good use of our resources as a church uh, to pour into that building. A lot of the money that we would need to spend, things like boilers and roofs, would never actually make the impact of financially in investing in lives changed. 
And so what we didn't want to do is just have a building uh, that needed a lot of money and a lot of work without able to do the ministry that God is calling us to do. So we, we believe that was not a good use of our resources. But I did want to share with you, uh, God has opened doors with, with many other community leaders, pastors in that community. I just had lunch with one on Friday and we were talking about this and just what God may be opening up in that community and around our city. God is at work. If you know, uh, a few years ago we launched a campaign called Vision 2020 and it was a campaign to say we want to be a church for our city, in fact for our region. And one of the places we want to do that is in the city of Mansfield, in the places of the underserved. And so we've been praying about that as the city center continues to expand. Uh, Jesse, who's doing a phenomenal job leading that, and Monica, who is leading that, doing a phenomenal job, an army of people that go there every week and serve. Uh, we believe God is opening some doors. And so we're going to keep you posted. We're going to continue conversations in the north end, in the, in the south end, in the east end, and the west end. We're going to look at all these different areas and say, God, where can we help most to serve this community, to make our community better for the sake of your name, Jesus. By the way, we have an end goal. Our end goal, and I, I don't hide that from anybody, we have an end goal, we have an angle on what we're trying to do. Our angle is the ability to proclaim the glorious truth that Jesus changes lives. We believe the greatest need in our community is Jesus Christ. And so the, all that we do at our city center, all that we're trying to do in our community, all that we're trying to do, 2,100 backpacks that went out, and thank you for those of you that came and helped stuff those backpacks, the 2,100 backpacks that are going out to kids in our community, why do we do that? We do that not just to make ourselves feel better. We do that because we want the right to be able to proclaim that we love you and we love you because God loves you. We love you because we believe that God can change your life. So we do have a means to an end. We don't want to hide that. Our end game is that people know the glorious truth that Jesus can save them. That they can, the community can be better, but yet they don't know Christ. And we want people to know Christ. And so by making the community better, our hope is that they see the legitimacy of the message that we live. That we don't just proclaim it, but we live it. That we love them because we believe God loves them. And so that's our hope in our city. Continue to pray. We believe that God is opening doors. We're going to keep you posted of, of where we're going to be ministering in and throughout our city. Uh, we're going to talk about what does that look like. Where is the best investment of our resources in order to see lives changed. And so we're going to keep you up to date on that. We're real excited about what God is doing. We didn't feel like this building was the right thing because we want to make sure when we infuse resources, we're infusing resources to be the most effective. And so uh, we're looking for that. We're talking to community leaders about that. We're talking to pastors about that. And God is at work behind the scenes. I've been amazed to see the unity of the body of our community, not just our church, but other churches coming together saying, hey, what does this look like to work together? What does this look like to come together? from every angle, background, every different race and, and thoughts about the community to come together for the purpose of Jesus Christ. God is doing that. And I've been blown away uh, in some of those meetings how God is at work. So we're going to keep you updated about some of those new areas that God may be calling us to serve in. Uh, let's look together Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, we've been in this series called Weird. We're going to wrap up the series today. And why we've been journeying through the book of Ephesians is we're, we're looking at our Christian identity in a weird season. Let's just be honest, we are in a weird season. Masks or no masks. School or no school. Hybrid plan or totally back. I mean, it's a confusing time. Work back in the office or work virtual. Uh, in fact, we, we had a phrase here for our small groups that will be launching here soon. We have some groups called Fidgetal. Partly physical, partly digital put the words together, they're going to be fidgetal. 
Like, right, we're in this weird season, and what we've been talking about is that in weird seasons, sometimes our identity gets lost, who we really are gets lost, that we get caught up in the fray of culture that we forget who we are in Christ. And what the book of Ephesians is all about is directing us to our identity in Jesus Christ from the very beginning. It says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have been chosen by the Father. You've been redeemed by the Son. You've been secured by the Spirit. He says that you've been saved by grace through faith, not of your doing, not of our works, lest any of us should boast, but by the work of God. He builds us and gives us identity that then overflows. It overflows. Ephesians chapter 4, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Ephesians chapter 5, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, be filled by the Holy Spirit. Let it affect your families, your kids, your workplaces. He talks about the fact that this identity now overflows all that we do. Now, I want to summarize for a moment the book of Ephesians. Because what the book of Ephesians does is gives us a holistic view of the Christian life. It really does. What do I mean? From the very beginning, God gives us identity. This is what salvation is. Salvation is God's work in giving us identity. And then that identity calls us to live out ministry. If you could connect the dots, it would be identity that leads to ministry. By the way, this whole process is what we call sanctification. We come to Jesus Christ, salvation we are then sanctified by having our identity reminded, our identity built, our identity fortified, and then it plays itself out in how we live, how we serve. And when I say ministry, I'm not just talking about church ministry. I'm talking about our family ministry. I'm talking about our work ministry. I'm talking about our school ministry. I'm talking about uh, our, our neighborhood ministry. I'm talking about all the ministry, all the activity that God calls us to. So we have identity that leads to ministry. Our identity received, not achieved, but now it lives itself out by walking worthy of the calling to which we've been called. This, this whole journey is called sanctification. The Lord making us more like Jesus Christ. Building our identity so we live out the ministry that God has called us to. But let's be honest. That doesn't happen as easy as we think it should, does it? It constantly feels like there's something against our identity... And there's something against the ministry God has called us. This is true as a church. By the way, we have an identity that lives itself out in ministry. And sometimes it feels like there's odds stacked against us. Or, you know, when I think about odds stacked against us, against us I can't help but to think uh, years ago, um, I had the privilege of training pastors in many places around the world. And one of the places that I spent the most time uh, was the country of Nicaragua. I've been to Nicaragua probably 20 plus times. In fact, three years in a row, I went four times a year. And I would go down there three to four times a year, and I would train pastors, and I would get to go out and visit pastors. And one of the things I loved about whenever we would go out and visit pastors in their churches is we would sometimes visit like five or six or seven a day. And whenever you go to a pastor's church, they would always provide a meal for you. <laughs> and I love that. I mean, obviously I love that. I mean, I show up at this church, and they're like, hey, sit down and have a meal. We'd eat. Go to this church. Let's sit down and have a meal. And, and I remember there was one specific day where I literally had five meals that day because every church I went, they had a meal for us. I mean, I love that culture. I love that reality. Like, why haven't we adopted that? But I remember being at one pastor's house, and he invited us in. And it was, it was a hut. It was very humble, out in the middle of nowhere, kind of the bush country. And um, he invited us in, and he was so proud of just being able to provide us dinner. And uh, we had been in training together, and uh, theological training as well as leadership training. We were talking and just kind of interacting together. And while we were sitting there eating, 
he had chickens that were kind of all around his house. And that's pretty common in places like Nicaragua. Chickens are in the city as well. And there's just chickens that kind of roam the streets. Well, he had some chickens outside of his house. Well, the doors, it was kind of open. It was kind of a hut-type format, so the door was always open, and there was a curtain that they could pull, but they left it open for the draft and to be able to get some air in there in the hot summer months. And these chickens kind of walked in because we were eating, so they just walked in, and some of them were pecking on the ground. But there was one chicken that kind of stopped and began to like go like this on the ground. And I was like, wait a minute, that's what a rooster does, like not a chicken. A chicken is doing this, but this chicken looked mean. In fact, there was one moment I'm sitting there eating, I make eye contact with this chicken, and it's like staring at me, staring at me. This is not a lie, this is absolute truth. All of a sudden, this chicken begins to come around the table and begins to peck at everybody's feet. Like it's pecking, and it's pecking. And so I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden this chicken is pecking at me, and I'm looking at me, and the, the pastor begins to laugh hysterically and goes, that's my security guard, in, <laughs> in Spanish, of course. And so this chicken is pecking us. So, so I get up, and we walk outside. I'm like, I need to, I need to move. This thing's going to bleed me out. I mean, it's pecking my heels. And I walk out of the hut, and this chicken follows me, chasing me. And while no one was looking, I turned to this chicken and say, if you don't stop it, you're going to be dinner. If you do not stop it, you're going to be dinner. As this thing was chasing me down, eventually I just kind of, kind of shoot it away. I didn't give it a full football punch, but I thought about it. You ever feel like there's just something chomping at your heels, trying to nip away at your identity, hinder your ministry, hinder your family, hinder your marriage. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like there's just this, this little thing that's just in your life that just seems to stop things and seems to slow you down, just seems to be a nuisance, just seems to be kind of holding you back a little bit. You ever feel that way? The Bible speaks about this. In fact, Paul is going to finish this book by giving us a glimpse into what's happening behind the scenes that's trying to steal our identity and stop our ministry. Take a look with me, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 10. Paul concludes this book with this truth. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord. I want you to notice, finally, Paul is saying, here is the crescendo. Here is the thing I want you to know before we end. I've talked about identity. I've talked about walking worthy of the calling. But finally, I want this truth to sink in. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance and also for me, um, and make supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." Here, Paul brings us to the end of this letter 
with a crescendo of saying, finally, remember this. Now, I want to look at four truths that Paul points out in this text about what we ought to remember when it comes to our identity and our ministry. Number one, we are in a spiritual battle. Every person here, every person at Lexington and Shelby, every person online, you are in a spiritual battle. What we find here in this text is perhaps one of the most clearest definitions of a spiritual war with which we find ourselves. This may be the most clear description of war that, that falls from the pen of the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit. He gives us a description and assures us that you and I are in a spiritual war. And he also reminds us we are hopelessly underpowered. That we are in a spiritual war that we need to pay attention to because we may not win it if we don't understand what's behind the scenes. There is a spiritual war. Now remember in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3, we started with this great declaration. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on and says, you've been chosen by the Father, you've been redeemed by the Son, you've been secured by the Spirit, that reminder of who we are. But from the very beginning, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. When you know Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing given in the heavenly places. But Paul says at the end of this book, hey, but wait a minute, there's also another angle to this. Not only are you blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but there's also a commencement of a great struggle with an enemy in the heavenly places. He says, you are in a spiritual battle. The truth of chapter 1, verse 3, becomes the battle we experience in chapter 6. Now, I want to ask this question. Here we are in a culture of a lot of battles. Right? There's great division. There's great confusion. There's great chaos. Could it be that for many of us, we are so focused on our physical battles that we are forgetting about the spiritual battle? Could it be that as people we are so focused on the physical division and the physical opinions of every little thing that happens that we're missing that there's something happening behind the scenes that is deeply spiritual? Could it be we're too busy debating masks wherever we lie on those things, that we're debating politics, that we're debating this person's opinion, that person's opinion, that we're debating schools and what they should do, that we're forgetting there is a force in the darkness that's chomping at the heels of every believer to bring about chaos. Could it be that we're so wrapped in our physical battles that we forget the spiritual battle? Paul here says, listen, don't forget there is a battle that's happening And this battle is spiritual. Notice verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In their day, wrestling was a real sport. It was one of the greatest sports of their day. By the way, today, if you are a high school wrestler or a collegiate wrestler, they call that type of wrestling Greco-Roman style wrestling. Why? Because it it, it started in the Greco-Roman world. In the first century, that that kind of wrestling was how they wrestled. And they run into each other. They would grapple with each other. And they would try to get each other down. And when the idea was to pin them down, to get the victory, it says, listen, you and I are wrestling, but we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Our wrestling match is not against a virus. Our wrestling match is not against a, a political leader. Our wrestling match is not against this teacher or not teacher or neighborhood or, or workplace or boss. Our wrestling match is not against any of those people. It's against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. It is spiritual. We are in a spiritual battle. Number two, we have an enemy 
that will use any means necessary to confuse our identity and stop the ministry. We have an enemy that will use any means necessary to confuse our identity and stop our ministry. Now, I love that Paul doesn't just leave us empty-handed with information. Why? Because Paul realizes if you're ever going to be able to defeat the enemy, if the enemy is truly going to be defeated practically every day of our lives, we have to have intel into who the enemy is. Isn't this true of war? Right? The way you win a war is you get intel about the enemy. The way you win a game, a sports game, football game, you get intel. You have scouts that go scout out how that team plays and what are their, what are their normal patterns and what are their predictable patterns. And you begin, to, you begin to win the victory when you understand who you're going against. So notice Paul here gives us the identity of our enemy. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? It's the devil. Against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says, listen, the enemy is Satan and his cronies. The enemy is Satan and his demonic work. The enemy is indeed powerful. He says it's Satan. Now, when we think of Satan, there are a lot of different opinions about this. There are kind of two extremes when it comes to Satan. There's one extreme that says, and many people believe, that Satan is behind everything. That Satan is behind all that happens. Now, we know he is an enemy and he is at work, but we think of Satan as behind everything. It reminds me of when my boys were younger, and specifically my older boys were probably about 12, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12, 13. We did this, well, they did this, um, almost daily, they had this little game going on where they would try to figure out how to scare mom. And so they figured out where to hide behind a corner. And they would pick during a time of the day, and they would jump out and scare mom. And it was, it was awesome. They would just laugh and crack up. And um, you know, they would hide in certain places and get under the, the cupboards, under the sink, and somebody just pops out, and she, she screams. And it was like a game. Every day they'd figure out, how do we scare mom today? And the boys would try to figure out, say, let's hide behind the corner. And they would pick a certain time of the day, and she wouldn't know what it's expecting. And it became kind of a fun thing. And I, I never encouraged this. I never would encourage it. I was like, boys, you shouldn't do this. Like, this isn't good. No, no, we would conspire together. Hey, guys, 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 mom's, mom's on the deck right now. Go hide, go hide. And they would scare her, and it would happen. They'd walk in. She would go to the store. She'd come back from a meeting with somebody, and all of a sudden, they would just jump out and scare her. And it was like we would crack up, we would laugh. And many of us, we think of Satan in the same way. We think around every corner, Satan is there trying to get us around every corner. In fact, do you know the Bible says that even every sin doesn't come as a result of Satan? In James chapter 1, it says that sin comes by our own desires. Satan is, isn't even to blame for every sin that we commit. For some of us, we look around every corner, and we're afraid because we think, Satan is there. We look at him as an attribute of every inconvenient circumstance. So, we get a dead car battery, Satan's against me. I'm in a traffic jam, Satan's against me. The price of a McDonald's sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit goes up, Satan is trying to take away my tithe. By the way, that may be Satan. I mean, that may be Satan in that work. But we try to look for Satan around every corner. 
Now, true, Satan is at work, but we got to be careful that we don't over-spiritualize all that happens in life. Our car batteries die, McDonald's raises their prices, traffic jams happen. Not everything comes from the hand of Satan. In fact, his ministry is a lot more specific than that. But there's also another danger. One of the dangers is that we see Satan behind everything. The other danger is that we see Satan as nowhere to be found. That we actually just think, well, Satan, and he is a defeated foe, right? He was defeated by the cross and resurrection. He's, he's just kind of going, he's not messing with me. He, he's not going to mess with me in my life. I believe that's an equally dangerous error that we ignore him altogether. He is a theme of the scripture. Here, Paul ends this letter by reminding us that there is an enemy. Now listen, that doesn't mean there aren't social systems against us. That doesn't mean there are, aren't cultural realities that come against us. But can I tell you, those aren't the problem. They are instruments of the work of the enemy. We have an enemy, an actual demon, actual devil, an actual Satan with actual power that is at work against us. In fact, I love the way C.S. Lewis describes this. He says, when it comes to the demonic, people usually fall into one of two errors. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they do not take him seriously enough. That's the extremes. For some of us, it's Satan around every corner. For others of us, we don't even pretend he's real. The Bible makes clear there is an enemy. In fact, I would encourage you, you can look back in your life. If you want to know whether Satan's at work in your life, look through the rearview mirror. See, you don't don't find Satan not in the microscope. You find Satan in the rearview mirror. What do I mean? And by the way, I'm not talking about your kids in the back seat. (laughs) At times. But the rearview mirror of life. Right? Isn't it true in your life? You look back and, and there, are, there are certain temptations that were just too perfectly timed and specifically ter- uh, tailored for your life. That's not merely coincidental. Satan knew exactly what he's doing. How many times has it been the wrong person put in your life at just the right time? And it creates chaos where you didn't expect it. Or maybe there was a right question that was planted in your head just to throw you off track, just to get you off track just a tad bit. Or how about a suspicion that grows in your heart that came just at the right time that creates a little bit of division with somebody else? Or how about the perfect storm that seems to rise in marriages or drives us away from kids that puts a wedge between people that attend church together? See, those things, the enemies at work, we can look back and see them. I remember... Uh, years ago, when I first came here, in fact, it was five years ago this summer, and uh, we had one of those moments where I look back, and now I can see that was Satan. That was, that was the enemy. Um, my wife's aunt died. Uh, they live in, in the Pittsburgh area. She died unexpectedly. She was battling some cancer. We didn't know that she was near the end, and she just passed away, and it wasn't expected. Uh, we knew there might be the chance of that, but it happened suddenly. So we go to the funeral in Pittsburgh, and on our way back, our car overheats. And when I say overheats, like it's, it's dead, it's dead. And so I had to come back for church. And so my wife is, is traveling back and my, her uncle actually had to drive and fill it up with coolant all the way home. All right, no big deal, right? That happens. We get home and then Allison is immensely sick. Like all of a sudden she just gets sick to the point that she has to go to the ER. In fact, they talk about keeping her all night. She is so sick. And then on the same day, on the same day, that night, there's a huge rainstorm and our basement floods. Who do you blame for that? 
Right, think about that. Have you ever had those moments where just like, okay, one thing wrong, one thing wrong. So I'm like on my knees, God, I, I repent of every sin that I've committed. I don't know, what does it show me? What does I need to get right? And all of a sudden, but then here's what happened. The next day, I get a call. It was from Laurie Biddle, who at the time was our creative arts director and our events uh, coordinator. And she calls me and goes, hey, Dave, would you be interested in going to speak at the Alive Festival? Um, they need a speaker to come. You know, this festival with eight to 10,000 people. I look back on that moment, and here was an opportunity that arose. By the way, that's a kind of an interesting point that sometimes when opportunities arise, Satan is going to do his work. And yet all of those things that happened, we believe, as I look back in the rearview mirror, I believe that was the enemy. The enemy was trying to discourage us, and it was discouraging. We were wondering, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? We didn't know where it was coming from. It was a spiritual war that was taking place. It was a spiritual war. And the battleground of Satan, let me give it to you. This is the battleground. Remember what I said at the beginning, that the book of Ephesians has been about identity that leads to ministry, identity that flows into ministry. That is exactly the realm of Satan. I want you to think about this picture again. There is identity that leads to ministry. Identity is where Satan attacks. Satan wants to confuse our identity. Satan does not want you to know Jesus Christ. If you're without Christ here or at any campus or online, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Satan wants to hinder that at all costs. He does not want you to come to know the life-saving power of Jesus Christ. He wants you in hell. And so what does he do? He hinders you from coming to the identity that Christ wants to give you. And then when you come to Christ, what does Satan do. Satan wants to confuse that identity. Satan wants to mess with that identity. Satan wants to, wants to hinder you from growing into that identity. And then what does he do? He stops the activity. He stops the ministry. He stops having you see everything in life as a part of the ministry God has called you to. See, this is exactly what Satan does. He works in the realm of identity and ministry. He tries to stop us from living in our Christian identity, and he tries to hinder the ministry of Christ that should come out of us. This is exactly what Satan does. He tries to create a hiccup in our identity in our, in our ministry. Now, how does he do that? A couple th- ways that he does that. He employs a variety of strategies. For example, Satan deceives. He deceives. I mean, remember, Satan came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and what does he come as? He doesn't come as himself. He comes as a serpent. He comes masked. He doesn't come unmasked. He comes deceiving them. In fact, I love what 2 Corinthians 11, 4, it says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He looks the form that looks good, but in fact, he's deceiving. Or Jesus himself, by the way, Jesus described Satan. He was having a conversation with the Pharisees, and he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now he comes and des- describes Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What is Jesus saying? Jesus saying is the outpouring of Satan's work is based upon who he really is. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He is trying to trip up our identity and stop our ministry. Secondly, he's a divider. He divides. He deceives, but he also divides. One of the big things in the church world is division. Right, He creates division. He wants to divide households. He wants to divide, divide friendships. He wants to divide groups of people. He wants to divide businesses. He wants to divide. This is what Satan does. He deceives and he divides. Anybody see that in our culture today? 
Anybody seeing a rising trend of division? Do we not think that Satan is having a heyday through social media? Do, Do we not think that Satan is having his way through us having a free place to put our thoughts without even thinking about other people? Not thinking about the impact that might have? Where we can just go to social media and say whatever we want and think it doesn't matter because the feelings of other people don't matter. I mean, think about that. This is where we're at, and Satan does this. This is Satan creating division. Also, Satan destroys. I mean, ultimately, Satan destroys. This is the point. Satan could care less whether or not you believe in him because he's not after your recognition. He's after your destruction. He can care less whether you recognize him or know him. What he cares about is destroying. This is exactly what the Bible says, 1 Peter 5. He is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Or John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. What does he say? He says, Jesus says, I come to give life and give it abundantly. Guess what Satan's doing? He's going to steal, he's going to kill, and he's going to destroy so you don't live in that abundant life. He's going to steal, he's going to kill, he's going to destroy so that you don't come to identity in Jesus and you don't live out the ministry of Jesus. He's steal, to kill, destroy. So how do we combat this? Certainly we know that Satan is a defeated foe. Right? At the cross and resurrection, Satan was defeated. He will not win the victory. When Christ rose out of the grave, the work, the work that Satan believed he accomplished in putting Jesus on the cross was accomplished and he was defeated. However, He's still here. His demise is future. It will come. But how do we endure? This is number three. We will only be able to stand against the enemy if our our strength is from Christ. Take a look at verse 10. He gives us the answer right from the very beginning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice the parallel statements. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Then he says, stand therefore. You notice the repetition? In the strength of his might, in the power of the Lord. Why? So that you may stand that you may stand, that you're able to stand against the enemy. By the way, I think this is really interesting. Um, we live in a culture where some preachers, some teachers will say, you need to go after Satan, bind him, and you know, just call him out, and stand against, or go against him, fight against him. Can I tell you, the Bible never ta- calls us to actually fight against Satan. He calls us to stand. In fact, there are only two things he calls us to run away from, Satan. There are two things he calls us to run away from Satan. It is sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he calls us to run away from the love of money. Two things we run away from. We run away from sexual immorality. We run away from the love of money. Or as I describe it, we, we flee two things. We flee money and we flee honeys. <laughs> flee monies and flee honeys. It's an easy thing to remember, right? So I, 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 don't, I flee only monies and honeys. Some of you, I don't think, get the honeys. You'll get that later. Um, the rest, we stand. Stand firm. So, so I, I want you to imagine, I remember when our boys were younger, we would go to the beach. And uh, in fact, I remember being younger. My nephew and I did this. Um, my nephew and I, we would go to the beach. We had a fam- big family vacation once a year. We would go to the beach, and my nephew and I were the same age. He's actually six weeks older than I am, so I was born an uncle. And uh, he was like my brother. But we, we would go to the ocean. And it was during the time when Karate Kid 
was out, and it was like the big movie of the day. And so we go in the ocean, and we had this competition, how far we could go out making the crane and not get knocked over. And so we go out in the ocean, we go out in the waves, and we'd make the crane until we were knocked over. And whoever could make it the farthest out in the waves won. This is the image, right? When that wave comes in and it hits you and it just tumbles you over and you lose your footing, that's the point here, right? We don't run from Satan, except for sexual immorality and love for money. We don't fight Satan, like, let's go, let's get in the ring together, we bind him. We do, right? Those words aren't found in Scripture. That's hum, human thought. We stand. We stand. We, we get firm standing to be able to withstand what Satan brings us. By the way, I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't beam us out of spiritual warfare. In fact, in John 17, he says, I pray that they would be one as we are one. I pray that you would help them to stand. I, I pray they will be in the world. What, what does it mean? Jesus himself parachuted us into the battle. And he said, I want them to be there. I want them to stand because when they stand, the world sees there's victory. So how do we stand? Take a look at verse, eight, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You and I are not able to stand on our own power. This battle that we're facing, we will not win on our own power. Why? Because you and I will lose it every time. But who's, where do we stand? What do we stand in? We stand in his power, in his might. In fact, I love this in the Greek. Uh, the Greek kind of uses this, this language of, of passiveness. The phrase be strong literally is translated be strengthened. Be strengthened in Christ. Now in Ephesians, he's already told us the source of all strength is Christ. If you go back to Ephesians over and over again, he said, have power, have power, have power in your inner man. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. He calls us to this power. So what happens? Can I tell you, in this battle, if you feel unqualified, that's a good thing. In the spiritual realm, our weakness is actually good. In the spiritual realm, our weakness and unqualified state actually provides for us the ability to lean into God's power. In this battle, my strength is a liability. And so I need the power of Christ. So here's the picture. When I'm confident in who the Lord is, I can stand firm. It's not that I'm confident in myself. It's not that I'm confident saying, Satan, get out of here, like I have some power like that. It's that I stand in the understanding of who Christ is. Christ, you died on that cross. Christ, you walk out of the grave. Christ, I have no power, but I need your strength to overwhelm me in this season. I might stand in the midst of the waves of the enemy that is spiritual. That's the point. I'm strengthened by Christ. And the more I am confident about who the Lord is, the less the enemy can do to me. The more confident I am about who the Lord is, the less the enemy affects me. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't attack, but the less he affects us. Why? Because I know the answer. I know it's Christ. I stand my ground. Now you might say, well, Dave, wait a minute here. If we're just standing our ground, how do we progress? You know what's interesting? Isn't it true when I stand my ground against Satan's schemes, when I stand the ground against sin, I actually do progress. By standing, God moves us forward. By standing firm, I, I'm able to move forward. I actually progress greater. Why? Because I'm confessing the victory is already won. I'm confessing the victory is already won and that Satan is not able to overcome that. That leads to the final point, and that is this. We must utilize our God-given weapons for our most vulnerable areas. 
we must utilize our God-given weapons for our most vulnerable areas. The church I pastored in Maryland, we had um, a bunch of acreage that was wooded. We actually had some trails and a kind of a bonfire place that was near our youth, uh, our, our youth center. And um, the boys and I, we would go out there with a couple other dads and sons, and we would play airsoft. Airsoft are like those, kind of like BB guns, but they're softer, and they're not supposed to hurt as much, depending on the gun you have. And so we would play sometimes, and when we would play, we would have usually dads versus kids, because there's nothing better than shooting your kids. That came out really wrong. Um, <laughs> nothing better than playing against your kids, right? Shooting against your kids for airsoft, and so we would go out. Well, one time, our, one of my friends, and he was a dad, and his sons came out, and he bought this, like, Benford 2000 airsoft gun. This thing had, like, 1,000 PSIs, and so, like, when he shot, it was like a machine gun. Now, airsoft are these little plastic BBs. They don't hurt. They're, I mean, they hurt, but they, they don't hurt that bad. They, you know, they won't go into your skin or anything, but they, they can sink. And so our boys all were wearing, like, shirts and T-shirts. It was hot summer day, and we're like, guys, now we, we, we required them to wear goggles or a face mask, but we were like, hey, guys, you probably want to put on some long sleeve. Like, we have some jeans. Put them on. And they're like, no, 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 we're fine. We're fine. We're like, all right. And they go out, and we say, all right, you guys can go high. We'll come find you. We're going to play a little battle. We had different games we did. And, and we went out after the kids, and this guy, we just stood behind him because he had this, like, automatic gun that's airsoft, and he would shoot it. And, would, and you could hear the kids as he would shoot them go, ah, you know, they would scream. And, and we were just like, this is awesome. Like, this is great. I mean, they're yelling. They're, and at the end, you know, they had all these little BB welts on them. And now I'm going to get really in trouble for this because uh, you're going to report me or something. Yeah. But, you know, they, it was their choice to wear T-shirts and shorts no, that's exactly the point, right, is, is when you play airsoft, like, you, you, are, you are strengthened in these goggles. You are strengthened in your layers of under armor. You are strengthened in your jeans that won't allow you to feel it. Like, it, 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 you'll feel it, but it won't sting, right? That's the point here. So what, what Paul does is say, be strengthened with his power. Now, here's how it works. Here's what you need to do then. Take a look at verse 14. Stand therefore... And then he begins to utilize these weapons. By the way, notice it says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor. Go, why? Because you don't want to have any vulnerable parts. You don't want to have any vulnerable pieces. He says there are susceptible areas of attack right now in your life. And so what does he do? He says take on these pieces. Take a look at them. This is not a literal outfit. This is not like Avengers. This is living in the reality of what he's already said. Take a look how he describes him. He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. The belt of truth. By the way, the belt in the Roman armor was what held every other piece together. It also protected the most vulnerable places. The belt of truth. What is our belt? Our belt is truth. That's why it's so important, why we say here all the time, you need to be people of the book. This is why we say all the time, we as a church open our Bibles. Why do we do that? Why do we make sure that we're opening this? Why? Because this book, the, the Bible, is, is, is a guard for us. It holds everything else up. It protects our most vulnerable places. When I know the truth of who Christ is, by the way, that's what this book is. It is the revelation of who God is, so that now I know who God is. I know that the victory has been won, and I can stand. It's the belt of truth. He, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. By the way, notice this is having put on. It's as if it's already there. All you have to do is live in it. It's the breastplate. I love the Roman breastplates. If you've ever seen a centurion or a picture of one, they're all rippled. They rippled them. No matter who you were or what size you were, when you put on a Roman breastplate, you had a six-pack. 
Do you know why they built it that way? It's really interesting. Why they built it that way is because they wanted to whoever, however small somebody was or however big somebody was, whatever size they were, that when they put on the breastplate to go into war, they felt like a machine. They felt ripped. That's the work. The, Paul here says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. When you live out a righteous life, you feel empowered. You feel ripped spiritually. When you're living out in obedience what God has commanded you, what happens? You feel reinforced. You, you feel ready for that attack. He goes on, verse 15, and the shoes of your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel peace, the shoes for the gospel. He, he says, make sure you've got your shoes on to be able to go forward in battle, to be able to stand in this battle. You need good shoes. What is the shoes? The gospel. When I share the gospel, when I live the gospel, what's happening? I'm standing against the, uh, the, the schemes of the enemy. When I'm living out the gospel, when I'm going forth in the gospel peace, by the way, isn't that so true in our world today? We have, a, we have a world of chaos. You could call the gospel of the world the gospel of confusion. We're called the gospel of peace. The gospel of the message of Jesus Christ. When we live that out, what happens? It fortifies us. He goes on. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Notice the shield is meant to protect us. The shield of faith. Our faith in Christ to be able to stand against the flaming darts of the evil one. I, I think about the shield of faith. You ever have those moments where Satan throws the dart in your thoughts? You're no good. You're nothing. You're pathetic. What have you done? Who do you think you are? God doesn't love you. Your marriage isn't what it used to be. You're never going to be a good parent. You'll always be sick. You'll never be out of debt. What has happened? The shield of faith comes back and says, no, no, no. I believe surely and goodness will follow me all the days of my life. I believe goodness and mercy will follow me. I, I, I realize that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I know that God is working in me his plan. And he works all things together for good to those who love him. That I can do all things through Christ. And there's circumstances that come, I can do all things. Oh, I have a shield of faith. I believe what Christ has said. I believe his word. He will never leave me nor forsake me. I believe it. He, he then goes on and says, and take the helmet of salvation. I think it's interesting he calls it the helmet so that we think about our salvation. You didn't save yourself. I didn't save myself. It was the work of God. He, he says, the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. I take the sword of the Spirit. It's the word of God. I now obey. The sword of the Spirit is a reactionary piece. It's a defensive piece. It is meant to block the enemy's uh, cuts and the enemy's moves. So I take the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, and I yield to it in my life. I, I let it have its control. I let it lead me. And then he says, prayer in the Spirit. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You know what I think is interesting? We don't always include prayer in this text, but I think it's interesting that prayer, prayer is not preparation. Prayer is actually the ministry. If you're going to withhold and withstand Satan's attacks, you've got to be a person of prayer. You've got to pray. By the way, notice what it says, all. Underline the word all. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints that you and I are called to pray for one another. Now, I want you to notice these seven things. You know what's interesting? All of these seven things can find their connection in the book of Ephesians. Every one of them. Why? Because these seven things are God's work of the gospel in our lives. Like if you know Christ, these are the seven things we live out. I, I, I live out faith. I live out righteousness. I live out my, my assurance in who Christ is. I live out uh, prayer. I live out salvation. I live out 
the gospel of peace that I walk in, right? Walk worthy of the calling. I, I live out the, the belt of truth. I live this truth out. I walk worthy of the truth of God, right? These are the pictures of the gospel. These seven things, he's not calling us to wake up every morning and put on a, a, an outfit. He's calling us to live in what has already been given to us in Christ. He's calling us to live in what Christ has already made available to us. That's why it says having put on, having done this. It's already done. You just have to live in it. I have to live in it. It's living in the reality of what I know Christ has done in my life. Let me ask you, where are you vulnerable? Is your identity in Christ vulnerable right now? Let me ask you, is your ministry vulnerable? Are you stagnant? Are you kind of sitting back and, and just taking a break? Is your ministry effective and your family this is true of our church. What's our identity? What's the ministry God is calling us to? Is Satan working his way to deceive, to divide, to even to destroy? Where, where are your vulnerable places? By the way, while that sounds detrimental, we know that Satan is a defeated foe. He's been doing this since the very beginning. He's defeated, yet he continues. He continues, and one day it will come to an end. But where is it that we're vulnerable, that we need this truth? We need to be strengthened in our might. That doesn't mean life's going to be easy, by the way. Remember, Jesus himself had to withstand Satan, and he had to go to a cross, and he had to die on a cross for us. But the Lord's apparent defeat brought about victory. In your life, maybe you feel defeated. Maybe you feel overwhelmed. Could it be that he's saying, stand, stand in victory? You know, when I think about this passage, I can't help but to think about uh, a part of history. I love history. I love reading about history. And one of the parts of history I love reading about is, is about the, the D-Day invasion, uh, June 6, 1944, when Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy, and they fought against the Germans. As you know, the World War II generation is called the greatest generation. I'm so appreciative of men and women who have sacrificed to give us our freedom, who continue to sacrifice to give us that freedom. But if you know the story of D-Day, it was, it was an onslaught. Uh, eventually, 150,000 troops would be dropped off on the, the shores of France at the beaches of Normandy. But on one day, one single day, uh, we had 4,000 Allied soldiers, 2,500 Americans that were killed in a matter of 15 minutes. It, it, it was an onslaught. It, the Germans had the upper coast. They were able to look down upon the enemy, and they just slaughtered every boat that came in. I mean, within 15 minutes, 4,000 people just dead like that. If you've ever seen movies like Saving Private Ryan, it gives this picture of the death of, of that moment. It gives this horrific glimpse into that what that day held. Can I tell you something? As they approached the beaches of Normandy, they had no delusion about what they were walking into. When those soldiers approached, none of them thought, hey, hey, guys, grab your rubber duckies and grab your beach towels. We're going on an exotic beach vacation. None of them thought that. Like when they landed on the beach of Normandy, they knew they were walking head first into an onslaught of an enemy who wanted nothing more than their destruction. They knew exactly what was going to happen. That they were going into the enemy's territory and it was not going to be good. Can I tell you, as Paul pulled back the curtain of this letter, he says, folks, there is a battle that is no less stringent 
And there is an enemy no less fierce that has tried to steal your identity, tried to confuse your identity, and tried to stop your ministry. There is an enemy that's trying to hinder God's work in your life. And for some of us, the tragedy, the reality, is that many of us are living life like we're on a playground instead of on the battleground. Many of us are living life as if we are approaching it like a vacation instead of a war. Paul here says, listen, finally be strong in the Lord. How silly is it, would it be to show up on D-Day with a towel in our hand and a rubber ducky? God is saying we're at war. Listen, right now there is a war that's going on. There's a war for your soul. There is a war for your identity. There is a war for your ministry. Are you standing? Are you standing in the strength of the Lord? Would you stand with me as we pray? Across every campus, would you stand? If you're, if you're here without Christ, listen, Satan right now, he, he wants to work. He wants to work. He wants to stop you from finding new identity in Jesus. If you're here and you know Christ, he wants to stop. He wants to stop the work that God is doing. By the way, for some of you, he's going to stop you from taking the step to be baptized. The enemy doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to take a step of obedience because if you're not willing to be baptized, then you probably won't follow in the difficult days. Satan is at work. We are in a battle. That battle has already been won by Christ, but the effect of that still is felt. And so we are called to stand, put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand, that we live in the reality of the gospel that God has given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. God, I want to thank you for this reminder. Lord, as Paul ends this letter by reminding us we are living out D-Day. It is D-Day today, tomorrow, the next day, until you come again. There is a battle. There is a fierce battle for the war of our souls, for our identities, and for our ministries. Lord, there's an enemy that wants to stop us from, from living out the fullness of our identity in you, Jesus, that wants to confuse it, wants to redefine it, a God that wants to stop people from coming into that identity, wants to leave them on a, on a roller coaster ride to hell. God, there's an enemy that wants to stop ministry, wants to stop our church's ministry, wants to stop our personal ministries and our families and our marriages with our kids and our in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces that wants to hinder us walking in wisdom and living out your spirit. But God, we thank you. We thank you that even in the midst of the battle, as we attempt to stand not in our own power, but in your power, as we yield to you, Christ, that we can even in that battle raise a hallelujah. Why? Because you've won the victory. The moment you walked out of that grave, all that Satan attempted to do, Lord, it's been defeated. And while it's not finished, it's defeated. God, one day when you return, Lord, you will take that enemy and you will bind him and eventually you will destroy him. Lord, the deception will end, the division will end, and the destruction will end. So God, we pray that we will live in that victory, that we would stand firm in the truth of the gospel in us. Offer your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Amen. Raise a hallelujah in the presence, even in the presence of our enemies.